Yeah, so welcome everybody to I think the third in-person uh, meeting we've had, uh, which is great, but according to my figures, the 12th meeting at the 142nd <laughs> session <laughs> of the Aristotelian Society, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Miriam Schoenfield, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, and an Affiliate Professor at the uh, Dianoia. Institute for Philosophy at Australian Catholic University. Her work, I'm sure as you know, is primarily in epistemology, particularly in the relation between rationality and evidence. She's published in many of the major journals and is the winner of the Mark Sanders Prize in Epistemology and the Young Epistemologist Prize, both I think in 2017. Professor Schoenfield's paper this evening is entitled Deferring to Doubt. Please join me in Thank you so much. Sometimes we start doubting our beliefs because we get evidence that they were formed in some sort of dubious fashion. Other times we might doubt our beliefs because we hear some kind of scary skeptical argument. And sometimes we doubt for no apparent reason at all. And it's very natural to think that giving up your belief in response to doubt is rational in some of these cases, but not in others. And what I want to do today is argue against this very natural thought, or at least one version of it. So basically what I'm going to be arguing for is that when it comes to doubt, we have a lot of freedom. Rationality imposes very few constraints on how we navigate that. So that was a very abstract characterization. So I'm going to get start with an example. And the first example is going to illustrate the kind of case that, I, that I'm talking about when I talk about doubt. Okay? So here is um, an example. Uh, stove. You're walking to work one morning listening to a podcast. You hear a fictional story about a house that burnt down because someone left the stove on. You start wondering whether that you forgot to turn off your stuff. And then you pause for a moment and you engage in a bit of reasoning. You think, I do remember that I cleaned the stove before leaving the house, and if the stove were on, I would have noticed that while I was cleaning it, in which case I would have turned it off, so the stove must be off. You breathe a sigh of relief and you move on with your day. Okay? So that little uh, story is one, the way I'm going to describe that, is one where you had a belief that the stove was off, you subjected that belief to doubt, and then, again, this is sort of my terminology, <laughs> you recovered that belief from what I'm going to be calling a perspective of doubt. Okay? So let me tell you a little bit about what each of those little pieces um, mean. So when I talk about a perspective in general, I'm just talking about a set of commitments. The commitments are going to either permit certain cognitive transitions or forbid them. Now, I'm talking about doxastic commitments. So these are commitments about how we form beliefs or how we reason. Okay? And I'm going to be assuming this is going to be implicit, but just if you're wondering, <laughs> uh, there's going to be this implicit assumption throughout that belief aims at truth. Okay? So what we're aiming for when we form belief is to end up with true beliefs and avoid false ones. Or in probabilistic terms, we're aiming for our credences to be accurate. Okay, so that's what a perspective is. Now, what is a perspective of doubt? A perspective of doubt 
is just a trimmed down version of our usual perspective. So it's a perspective that is in some sense less committal than the one we ordinarily have. Okay? So the way I think about what happens when we doubt is this. We, 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 we're going around the world with some beliefs, and then we start to doubt. And when we're doubting, we're not willing to rely on some commitments that ordinarily we're perfectly happy to rely on. And what we're interested in is, can I get my belief back from this perspective in which I've set some of my commitments aside. Okay? So in the stove case, how did this work? Well, you started doubting the proposition that you turned off the stove. So the perspective of doubt, the one that's less committal than your usual one, of course, doesn't include the belief that you turned off the stove. That's what you're subjecting to doubt. But there are some other very closely related beliefs that it didn't include as well. So for example, it didn't include the belief that there's an open flame in the kitchen. Uh, that there isn't an open flame in the kitchen, sorry. <laughs> um, it also didn't include a commitment to you know, silly propositions like either the stove is off or 2 plus 2 equals 5. So there's a whole bunch of kind of stuff that you're not willing to rely on when you're reasoning your way back to the belief that the stove is indeed off. But there are also plenty of beliefs that you are happy to rely on. You are happy to rely on the belief that you cleaned the stove, that you own a stove, that the world came into existence more than five minutes ago, and so forth. Okay? So when you doubt a belief, there's not just one way of doubting it. You can always, there are a gazillion ways to doubt a belief, depending on what you set aside and what you're willing to still hold on to. Okay? And so these perspectives, the less committal perspectives, these are the ones I'm calling the perspective of doubt. Um, and when you're able to reason your way back from some perspective of doubt, I call that recovering a belief from doubt. Okay. Now I want to talk about a, a very different uh, sort of case. So um, this is a case of higher order evidence. And let me just say before I present the case, it's a bit of a kind of toy artificial case. But the reason I'm interested in these, the reason I got interested in these cases is because they're connected to a, a range of much more interesting cases. Basically, these are cases where causal influences have potentially messed with our beliefs in certain ways. So in this case, you'll see the agent forms beliefs under sleepy conditions, and that makes her less reliable than usual. But all sorts of things can potentially interfere with our, with our beliefs, you know, drugs, alcohol, hypnosis, growing up in certain communities, studying with certain supervisors, and so forth, okay? So there's a whole bunch of influences that come to our beliefs, many of which are not evidential or truth-conducive, and you can get in the kind of mood where this is very worrying. Okay, so I'm just, that's not really going to be relevant for the talk, but this is just a toy case, which is an instance of that general cat. Okay, so this case is a version of a case from Sophie Horwitz, and here's how it goes. You're a police detective investigating a jewel theft. There are two suspects under consideration, and before examining any evidence, you assign a 0.5 credence to each one being the thief. So you're agnostic, you're 50-50. Late one night, after hours of cracking codes and scrutinizing photographs, you conclude that the thief was Lucy. In fact, it is Lucy, and you evaluated your evidence properly. You call your partner, Alex. I've gone through all the evidence, you say, 
and I found the thief. But Alex is unimpressed. She replies, I can tell you've been up all night working on this. Your late, late night reasoning has been awful in the past. You're always very confident that you found the culprit, but under these circumstances, you do know better than chance. So I'm not convinced. You rationally trust Alex and believe that you've done no better than chance on such occasions. Okay? Now, a lot of people have the intuition that once you get this evidence that you're reasoning under circumstances in which you tend to do no better than chance, <coughs> you should not trust the reasoning that you just did, and you should revert back to the opinion you had before you engaged in this reasoning. Okay? So a lot of people think, and I, this is what I call the defeatist verdict, that your credence should go back down to 0.5. Okay? And for most of the talk, I'm just going to be assuming that that's right. Uh, as you'll see, my own view ends up being a little bit more complicated. But for now, I'm just going to kind of see what follows from the thought that, in this case, your credence should go back down to point. Okay. So I think it's intuitive. At least I feel compelled by the intuition. However, it's extremely difficult to motivate this verdict theoretically. And the reason it's very difficult to motivate it is that it is inconsistent with some of our best theories of how to revise beliefs in response to new evidence. In particular, it's incompatible with classical Bayesian conditionalization. Now, I suspect some of you here know what conditionalization is. I suspect some of you don't. Um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so um, if you don't know what conditionalization is, one option is to just not worry about it, because I'm not really going to mention conditionalization again. Uh, it might. The word might come up one more time, but you don't need to worry about it. However, if you would like to know what it is, Appendix 1 has a little primer. Okay. Um, if you do know what conditionalization is, you're probably wondering why the, the, the verdict, the, the, credence, the idea that your credence should go back down to 0.5 is incompatible with it. And this is going to be the very unsatisfying juncture of the talk in which I say, I argue for this in other work. Okay, which is true. So there are some uh, references on the handout. And, and just so you know, on the handout for the references, I didn't include a full bibliography, but the bibliography is in the paper version, which is on the website, if you want to follow up on any of those. So there are some references. However, also for those, that particular class of people, Appendix 2 contains a little bit of the sort of gist of it. Okay, so that's available uh, for your perusal as well. Okay, now, setting conditionalization aside, I'm going to try to sort of give you a sense informally of why this verdict is puzzling. That although intuitive, there's a, a way in which it's quite puzzling. Okay? And to get a feel for it, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to imagine that I'm, I, I, I'm confronting this detective, and I say, Detective, you just heard that you're reasoning under circumstances in which you do know better than chance. You ought to dramatically reduce your confidence that Lucy is the culprit. And the question I want to ask is, what is wrong with the detective responding as follows? And the response that I'm kind of offering on behalf of the detective who wants to stick to his guns is what I'm calling the lucky me response. This is on page two of the handout. Okay, so here's how that goes. He says, when I'm tired, 
when I've been up all night, my reasoning will sometimes lead me to the wrong conclusion. In fact, about 50% of the time, it will lead me to the wrong conclusion. But 50% is 50%. That means 50% of the time it leads me to the right conclusion. Yeah? So doing no better than chance doesn't mean you're mistaken in every instance. So now the question is, how likely is it that I got things right on this particular occasion, this night, this evidence, this, this, uh, this crime scene? Well, I got things right on this occasion, if and only if, Lucy is indeed the thief, because that was the conclusion that I reached. So now the question I want to ask is, is Lucy the thief? Well, fortunately, I have a ton of evidence that bears on the question of whether Lucy is the thief. Let's see. The fingerprint evidence says blah, 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 and the letter she wrote says blah, blah, blah. And if I calculate the distance between the other suspect's house and the crime scene, it's like this. So it's almost certainly her. This means that this is one of the occasions in which I almost certainly got things right. Lucky me. So in other words, it's not as if all the detective knows about the situation is that they're sleepy. The detective knows they're sleepy, and they have a whole pile of evidence that bears on the question of whether Lucy is the thief, which is the very same question as whether they got things right. Okay? So they've got a lot of evidence that bears on the question of whether they got things right, and if they can make use of that evidence, they can say, I've got good reason for thinking that, this, that I was lucky. And so if we want to say, no, 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 <laughs> that's not the right way to think about this, you ought to dramatically uh, reduce your confidence. We need a way to block this move. We need to say, what's wrong with lucky memes? Okay? So here's the kind of thing that people have said about this before. So um, this, this comes primarily from, from David Christians. So he says, to block this kind of reasoning, we need to appeal to what are called independence principles. And, and what these principles do is they say something like this. When you're evaluating the likelihood that some conclusion you reached is correct, you need to do so in a way that's independent of the very reasoning that's in question. Okay? You need to, and this is again his, his phrase, bracket some of your evidence or some of your reasoning. Some of it is, so to speak, not available for use. So the idea is that the problem with the lucky me reasoning is this. What's being cast into doubt is a certain process of reasoning, a, a, a certain kind of reasoning from the body of evidence that the detective has to the conclusion that Lucy is the culprit. But now, when the detective is justifying the claim that he got things right, he's appealing to the very reasoning that's in question. And the independence principle says that's not allowed. You need, if you're going to do any justifying here, you need to do so in a way that brackets what has been cast into doubt. Okay. Now, when I first encountered these independence principles, you just read them, they sound extraordinarily odd because they basically tell you ignore some of your evidence. And in all of the rest of my epistemology classes, they were telling me, don't ever do that. You need to always take into account of all of your evidence. So why on earth would you be ignoring some of it in these cases? It sounds strange. Okay. Now, what I want to propose, and I, I don't take this to be, I don't expect this to be particularly either controversial or, or revisionary, just that what's going on here is 
it, it kind of seems more natural if we think about these independence principles, these recommendations, as falling under this more general category of doubting. So doubting, like we do in the stove case, that's something that we do on a day-to-day -day basis where we go, oh, did, I, did I leave the stove on? Okay, I reason my way back to the belief, and so forth. And in all of those cases, what we're doing is we're bracketing. So we get interested in this question, can my belief be recovered from a perspective that's less committal than my usual one? Okay? And again, I'm not trying to justify anything here, just sort of pointing out that this is something that we do. What's happening in the higher order evidence cases, in these defeat cases, is that if we subject our belief to doubt that Lucy is the culprit, we can't recover it. Okay? That's what's special about these cases. In the stove case, that, was, that had a happy ending. I subjected the belief to doubt and I can recover it. But if we've got these higher defeaters around that tell us we're unreliable, once we do the bracketing, we can't make our way back. Okay? So that's how um, I'm proposing that we think about these cases. And so people who have the defeatist uh, view, the view that you ought to dramatically reduce confidence in these cases, are in effect telling you that in these cases, you really need to take this perspective of doubt seriously. So this perspective of doubt says, we can't rely on this stuff that's been bracketed, and as a result, what's recommended is abandoning belief, and therefore, because that's what the perspective of doubt says, that's what you ought to do. Okay? And so this idea, the following uh, move, thinking to yourself, I notice that the less committal perspective recommends agnosticism, therefore I will be agnostic. That's what I'm calling deferring to doubt. So you look at the recommendations of the less committal perspective, the perspective of doubt, and then you adopt those recommendations. So that's a case in which you've deferred to doubt, and what's being recommended by the defeatist is that you defer to doubt in this case. Okay. Now, so far, the story might sound kind of like this. We do this doubting thing in various, various circumstances. Uh, sometimes things go well for us. We can recover our belief from the perspective of doubt. We can sort of fish ourselves out of the doubtful perspective and end up at our original one. And in that case, we get to maintain our belief and be very happy. Other times, it doesn't work so well. Once we start engaging in doubt, we realize that the perspective of doubt, for various reasons, doesn't allow us to get back our original belief, and then in those cases, we should give it up. Okay? So that's a kind of story that might be sort of emerging <laughs> from these cases. But that can't be the right story. And the reason that can't be the right story, the reason we can't say, you know, if ever you don't recover a belief from a perspective of doubt, you ought to abandon it, is because that story is going to lead us straight into wholesale skepticism. Okay? The foundation of the skeptical arguments really are very similar to these kinds of independence principles. They say, when you're trying to assess whether perception is reliable, don't rely on perception. Okay? And we know from Descartes, if you set aside all of the beliefs you got from perception and you just start thinking about how things appear to you, you can't get those beliefs back. Those beliefs cannot be recovered from the perspective of doubt. And we know that if you set aside your commitment to induction, you're not going to be able to recover your belief that the sun will rise tomorrow. 
And if you set aside your commitment to the reliability of your memory, you won't be able to get your belief that the sun rose yesterday. Okay? So all of these skeptical arguments, what they show us is that if you start out reasoning from a perspective that doesn't contain all of your commitments, that's, that's trimmed down in the relevant way, you can't get those commitments back. Now that's disturbing. Um, that's why we're fascinated by skepticism, because it is disturbing. But most people, nonetheless, go on believing that the sun will rise tomorrow, and that they have hands, and that there's an external world, and so forth. And for whatever reason, I've never been totally sure why, epistemologists seem to think that that is indeed rational, okay? so that, we, that, that it's rational to not be a skeptic. Okay. And so here is the puzzle. <laughs> the puzzle is, in some cases, like the sleepy detective case, it seems like the fact that we can't recover the belief from doubt means we ought to give it up. The independence principle seems kind of right. The lucky me reasoning seems kind of right. But in the cases described by the skeptical arguments, it seems like the independence principles are leading us in the wrong direction. Yes, I've, I can't recover my belief that there's an external world if I set all that stuff aside, but I'm just not going to set all that stuff aside. Why should I set all that stuff aside? That's the kind of response we have in the skeptical. And so the puzzle is, why defer to doubt in some cases but not others? Can we give some sort of principled justification for this difference? Okay. Okay. So ultimately, what I want to try to argue for is that the answer to that is no. There is no uh, way to, to motivate this difference. Um, and then. Ultimately, my own spin is going to be, therefore, do whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> but um, you, might not, you might not go all the way there with me. But I, I, I do hope to convince you um, that it's, there's at least a certain sense in which it's very difficult to motivate treating these cases differently, the higher order defeat case and the skeptical cases. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to put for, I'm going to describe um, what I think is the sort of most popular proposal for dealing with these sorts of cases, for, for trying to distinguish them. And I'm going to then explain why there's a certain sense in which that proposal fails. The sense in which it fails is that it's not a proposal that's going to make sense from the perspective of somebody who finds themselves in one of these situations and wondering what to do. Okay? So I call that the deliberative standpoint. There's a certain proposal that's put forward by philosophers, but I, the agent, am in the situation. I hear what the philosophers are telling me to do, but from my perspective, their advice looks nonsensical. Okay. Okay. Um, and then I'm gonna wave some hands around, and hopefully you'll see why that kind of generalizes. Okay. But I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on on, on this particular uh, proposal. Okay, so this view that um, has been articulated by David Christensen and Katya Vavava, I call this the GERP, not NERP view. And um, I'll read you the principles, but it's a lot of words and a lot of negatives, so, so don't worry too much. I'll, I'll try and make them, them clear uh, afterwards, but just, just so we have them formulated. Okay, so the move here by Christensen and Vavava is that there's two principles. And they want to accept one and reject the other, and they think that's going to get them what they want. Okay? So here's the one that they like. Here's, here's, the, here's the principle that they think is a good principle. 
the Good Independent Reason Principle, or GERP. And what it says, this is a quote from Vamava, to the extent that you have good, <coughs> undefeated, independent reason to think that you are mistaken with respect to P, you must revise your confidence in P accordingly. Okay? That's the principle they like. Now, when they talk about a good independent reason, what that independent reason basically means, a reason that's available from the perspective of doubt, a reason that you have even in the bracketed perspective. And so their thought is, is this. If you're looking at some perspective of doubt, and that perspective of doubt has a good reason to think that you got things wrong, then you ought to worry. You ought to give up your belief. And the idea is, in the sleepy detective case, that's what's going on. So if you set aside all of this reasoning about Lucy and so forth, you imagine yourself thinking about things from the perspective of doubt. That perspective has good reason to think you made a mistake. What is that reason? Namely, you're sleepy. Okay? And you're, no, and you're very unreliable when you're sleeping. So that's the reason that the perspective of doubt has for thinking that you made a mistake. Okay. But the thought is, that GERP will not give you skepticism. Because in the skeptical perspective of doubt, they claim, it's not like you have some good reason for thinking perception is unreliable, for thinking that you've made an error. It's just that you don't have much in the way of reasons at all. The perspective is so impoverished, you just kind of don't have much to go on. Okay? So they think GERP does deliver the verdict um, that you ought to abandon belief in sleepy detective, but it does not deliver the verdict that you ought to abandon belief in the external. Okay, so that's a good. Now, there is a principle that would tell you to abandon belief in the skeptical cases, and that's NERP. But NERP, they say, is a bad principle that should be rejected. Okay, so what does NERP say? NERP is the no independent principle, and it says, to the extent that you lack a good, undefeated, independent reason, to think that you are correct with respect to P, you must revise your credence in P accordingly. Okay. So here is the bummer thing about the skeptical perspective. It doesn't have any reasons to think you got things right. It contains no reasons to think you got things wrong and no reasons to think you got things right. At least that's what the skeptic is, is claiming. Okay? Um, and so if you thought you're not allowed to believe something unless you have an independent reason for thinking you got it right, then you would say, well, I guess I can't trust my perception because without relying on perception, I have no reason to think perception is reliable. Okay? But they say NERP is a bad principle, so don't worry about the fact that NERP gives you skepticism. The good principle, GERP, gives you exactly what you want. Okay, so that's their proposal. All right, now here is my claim. From the perspective of a deliberator, and by a deliberator I mean someone who's in one of these situations and they're trying to decide whether or not to defer to doubt, whether to adopt the agnosticism that the perspective of doubt recommends. So I'm going to claim, from the perspective of the deliberator, the idea that you should follow these criteria, in other words, you should defer to doubt if you have good reasons for thinking you made a mistake, but you should not defer if you merely lack good reasons for thinking you got things wrong. That is going to look unmotivated from the deliberator's perspective. Okay, so let's just uh, take a concrete case. 
So suppose, I mean, it's not concrete, it's abstract, but we'll have a variable. Um, suppose I recognize that if I bracket my reasoning about E, the resulting perspective, I'm going to call this the skinny perspective, the one that's less committal, recommends abandoning belief in P. Okay, so we just imagine in some case, the perspective of that, the one that doesn't allow me to make use of the E stuff, recommends that I be agnostic about P. That's the skinny perspective. But the perspective that makes use of E, right, so if I had all the resources available, the, e, the ones that E provides, I'm going to call that the fat perspective, that does have the resources to support belief in P. And I'm deliberating about whether to defer to the perspective of it. Okay, so that's just the structure of the case, right? We've got a fat perspective and a skinny perspective. The fat perspective says believe P. The skinny perspective says don't believe P. My ordinary perspective, the one I sort of had going into all this, was the fat one. I recognize that this, the skinny perspective recommends abandoning belief, and I'm wondering whether to defer. Okay? And Christensen and Bababa are supposed to be giving me an answer to this. The answer they're giving me is, look at the skinny perspective and see whether it has good reasons for thinking you made a mistake, and that's why it's recommending agnosticism, or it merely lacks good reasons for thinking you got it right, and that's why it's recommending agnosticism. And depending on how you answer that, that will determine whether or not I ought to defer to its recommendation. Okay, so that's just the setup. Now here's the crucial point uh, that, that is the sort of foundation of this argument that I'm going to give. When you're thinking about whether to defer to the perspective of doubt, so you're in the situation, you're like, should I defer to doubt or not? You are deliberating. So you are, you are occupying some perspective while engaged in the question of whether to defer to doubt. So I think all deliberation takes place from some perspective. In other words, all deliberation proceeds from some set of commitments. You can't deliberate from nowhere. That doesn't make sense, according to me. Okay. And now, we can ask a question about the perspective from which you're deliberating about whether to defer to doubt. Remember, a perspective is a set, set of commitments. So we can ask a question. Does that set of commitments permit reasoning with E, the stuff that the perspective of doubt sets aside, or does the perspective forbid reasoning with E? One of the other things is going to be true. Okay, so another way to put the question, is the perspective from which I'm deliberating about whether to defer to doubt a fat perspective or a skinny one? Does it allow using E or does it not? And basically what I'm going to argue is, if it's fat, it will tell you to believe P, no matter what else is going on in the case, regardless of all this reasonsy stuff that Christensen and Vavar are talking about. And if it's skinny, it will tell you to give up your belief, regardless of what else is going on in the case regardless of all this reasonsy stuff that Christensen and Vavavar are talking about. And so, the kinds of considerations that you might bring to bear on this question of whether to defer to doubt are going to look irrelevant. Okay? So that's the overview of the argument. Now I'm going to go through each uh, case. Okay. So here's the first case. So remember, what we're interested in is what is the perspective like from which I'm deliberating about whether to defer to doubt? Okay? 
And so the first case we're going to consider is one in which the perspective I occupy while deliberating about whether to defer to doubt is the fat perspective. So it is one that permits making use of my reasoning about E. Okay. That perspective is going to recommend that I believe P. Why is that? Because it has all of these resources, E, which by stipulation support P. Okay. Now notice that this is going to be true regardless of what the structure of reasons is in the perspective of doubt. Okay. So if I've got all this E stuff available, and I look at, and I'm willing to make use of it because I'm occupying the fat perspective. So one of my commitments is it's fine to appeal to E. And I'm looking at the skinny perspective. And suppose it's a case like Sleepy Detective. I see that that skinny perspective over there has very good reasons to think I made a mistake. Well, that should not move me because I have more to go on than it. So, in other words, I have a defeater for the good reason it has for thinking I made a mistake. What's my defeater? E, all of the stuff that supports me. Okay. Another way of putting it this is, if I'm in the fat perspective, I should think of the skinny perspective the way I would think of somebody who has less evidence than I do. They might have good reasons to believe all sorts of things, but that's not going to translate into me having reasons to believe those things, because I might have extra evidence which defeats whatever reasons they have. Okay? So just a simple example of that. Suppose I know that my neighbor has very good reasons to think that she can park on the road in front of our apartment building today. She has very good reasons because she always can and it's legal and she has the relevant permits and there's always space and so on and so on. Okay? But suppose I know that I'm, I'm moving and that there's going to be a giant moving truck and there are going to be signs that say no parking on the street because my, my moving truck is there. Okay. Now, I'm going to look at her skinny perspective, the one that doesn't have all the information that I have, and I'm going to say she has good reasons to think that she can park on the street. But I don't have good reason to think she can park on the street because I know more. I've got a defeater, the stuff about the moving truck. Okay? And it's exactly the same way with the fat and skinny perspective. I've got E available. And E supports the belief that P. So it's so what that the skinny perspective has good reasons to think I made a mistake. I've got something which defeats that. Okay? So this is why the fat perspective will recommend believing <coughs> P regardless of the structure of reasons. Okay? And so the kind of considerations that Christensen and Vavavargan appeal to um, won't look relevant. Okay. But now suppose that's not the situation. Suppose the situation is case two. I'm deliberating about whether to defer to doubt. The perspective I'm occupying while engaging in that deliberation is the skinny perspective. It forbids making use of my reasoning about E. Okay? If I'm deliberating about whether to defer to doubt from the perspective that doesn't let me make use of my reasoning about E, then I'm deliberating about whether to defer to doubt from the perspective of doubt. That just is what the perspective of doubt is in this case, the one that doesn't let me make use of my reasoning about E. So if you ask the perspective, if you ask any perspective that's coherent, should I do what you recommend? The answer will be a resounding yes. Of course you should do what I, what I recommend. 
That's what the perspective of doubt is going to say. Okay? And again, this is a case we've stipulated. Not every case is like this. Like in the stove case, the perspective of doubt allows you to recover. But we're focusing specifically on cases where the perspective of doubt doesn't allow you to recover the belief. The perspective of doubt recommends agnosticism. Okay? So if you're deliberating about whether to defer to doubt from the perspective of doubt, the answer will always be defer to doubt, become agnostic. And again, this will be true regardless of anything about the structure of reason. If you say to the perspective of doubt, but wait a second, you know, you're just telling me to abandon my belief because you don't have a whole lot to go on. It's going to say, yes, precisely. I have no evidence that bears on whether P. That's why you shouldn't be believing P. Okay? So if you're really operating from that skinny perspective, of course the answer is going to be um, to, to be agnostic. So. What I've just done is argue that the kinds of considerations that Christensen and Bavava are pointing to are not going to sort of have a deliberative grip on someone who's in that situation. And in a way, that's because if you're deliberating from the fat perspective, you're always going to want to stay fat. And if you're deliberating from the skinny perspective, you're always going to want to stay skinny by virtue of the stipulations of the case. Okay? Um, so, so this is where the hand-wavy part comes in. Um, this is going to be quite general. So if you, if you tried to give me some other considerations about whether to defer to doubt, you know, not something about the structure of reasons, but I don't know, pick your favorite thing, you know, whether it's a Tuesday or not, I could give the very same argument. Say those considerations are going to look irrelevant from the perspective of the dilemma. Okay. Now, and here's like what's going on in this, in this strange argument. Here's the strange thing about your conundrum in these cases, when you're trying to decide whether to defer to doubt, is that you're in a case in which the very act of trying to decide what to do requires that you've already done it. That's what's weird. That's what's going on here. Okay. You're deliberating about something, whether to defer to doubt. That means you already have a perspective because you're engaged in deliberation. As a matter of logic, that perspective is either going to be fat or skinny. It either lets you use E or it doesn't. And then that decides the matter for you. So that's what's weird. Um, and, that is, and, and that is why I think that basically rationality can't have a grip on these sorts of decisions where the very act of making the decision requires that the decision has already been made. Okay? All right. So that's really the end of the serious philosophy. Um, so, uh, so um, and, and by that I mean, I'm not really going to say anything more about normativity, about what is and isn't, what isn't rational. Um, because these sorts of considerations have led me to think that rationality just doesn't have anything to say about these sorts of questions. However, I've been very gripped by this other question, which is, okay, forget rationality. Why is it that in fact, as a matter of like descriptive fact, we're sometimes motivated to defer to doubt and sometimes we're not? 
Now, I gave you some pretty, uh, I gave you sort of cases at two ends of a continuum. The sleepy detective case is one where many people are sympathetic to the verdict that you want to defer to doubt. The skeptical cases are met, cases where many people are sympathetic to the verdict that you ought to maintain belief. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. Okay, so some of the cases I mentioned earlier, cases where you realize, say, that your religious beliefs or your political beliefs are highly influenced by your social surroundings. You only believe such and such thing because these are the people you grew up with, for example. In those sorts of cases, people, it's, it's less clear. Some people have different reactions. Some people are very moved. Some people think, no, it's fine to maintain. Okay. So there's really a whole continuum of cases. And I'm kind of interested in the descriptive question, since I think normativity has nothing to say. Why is it that, in fact, we have the dispositions to defer to doubt when we do? Okay. So now I'm going to offer two proposals. These are speculations, because I'm talking about descriptive stuff. So I have no expertise, really, um, when it comes to this. Um, but I'm going to, to speculate about why we might have these tendencies. Okay. The first has to do with what I'm going to call epistemic absurdity. And the notion of absurdity here, um, I'm taking from uh, Thomas Nagel, the way, he, the way Na Thomas Nagel talked about the absurd. And what Nagel was interested in when he talked about the absurd was the following. That if we take a sort of big step back from our practical perspectives, from what we value, everything we do looks utterly meaningless and completely arbitrary. Okay? So for example, suppose I'm sitting down grading some papers, and I say, why am I doing this? And then I might answer to myself, well, I told my students that I'd have their papers back by the end of the week, and you know, it's going to help them produce better philosophy. And, and then I say, well, what's the, so what? What, what? What's the point of philosophy? What's the point of teaching undergraduates philosophy? What's the point of following through my responsibilities? What's the point of having a job? You know, blah, 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 blah. So this is something we can all kind of do. We have this funny thing of where we can kind of get in this mind frame where everything we're doing looks completely meaningless and absurd. So here's Nagel's quote. He says, we see ourselves from outside. Again, this is like outside, independence, is related stuff. And all the contingency and specificity of our aims and pursuits become clear. Yet when we take this view and recognize what we do in our, is arbitrary, it does not disengage us from life. And there lies our absurdity. I love this quote. It gives me a little bit chills every time I read it, just, including just now. OK, so that's the absurdity of our condition, which is that we can step back. And from this stepped back perspective, what I would call a perspective of doubt, all this stuff looks totally meaningless. And yet we stay in it. Yet we engage. Okay. All right. So epistemic absurdity is just the epistemic analog of this. Epistemic absurdity is just the fact that we take a big step back from our beliefs, as we do when we encounter skeptical arguments. Suddenly, we're not relying on perception. We're not relying on induction. And all the stuff we believe looks utterly arbitrary. It looks like there are no good reasons for it at all. And yet, we stay engaged. We continue to believe anyway. 
Okay, so that's the that's the absurdity. Okay, so that's <coughs> what that is. Now, what's emphasized the lesson Nagel is the fact that if we take little teeny steps back, what we do doesn't look arbitrary or meaningless at all. So if I just take a little, I'm grading my papers, I just take a little teeny step back and I say, why am I grading my papers? So I'm not willing to rely on the value of paper grading. And I say, aha, because I promised my students that I would get their papers back in time. Now I'm able to recover the value of paper grading from the perspective of doubt. So I took a little teeny step back and I ended up just where I was. Right? So that's like the stove case, happy ending. Okay. The absurdity only comes in when you take a, a big, gigantic step. Now, what's going on in these higher order defeat cases, like the sleepy detective one, is that you can't recover your belief from doubt even by taking a teeny step back. You didn't have to doubt perception and memory and induction and all the stuff. You just had to doubt at this little bit of reasoning you did. And because of the presence of the defeaters, because you can't trust your reasoning, yada, yada, even taking a little step back doesn't allow you to recover. Okay? So here's my hypothesis, which is that, so there's a little bit of, if you, if you maintain belief in the high order defeat case, in the sleepy detective case, you know, you're doing the, you're, you're into the absurd thing, right? You realize that if you took a step back, you wouldn't be able to get the belief, and yet you continue to believe, you engage. Okay. So the hypothesis is that there's just kind of limits to how much absurdity we'll tolerate. So we've all kind of somehow or other managed to, to live with the fact that if we take a huge step back, we can't get our commitments back, either practical or epistemic. So there's no absurdity involved in that. But there's more absurdity involved if even taking a little teeny step back, you can't get back your commitments. Okay? And maybe this, our tendencies just have to do with sort of how much absurdity we're willing to tolerate. Um, there isn't going to be a sharp line, and different people are going to kind of have different degrees of tolerance. But that's the thought. It's something to do. Absurdity involves some amount of discomfort. More absurdity involves more discomfort. The higher order defeat case involves a whole lot of absurdity. And the skeptical cases are, in a sense, the limiting case because you've had to set aside so much. Okay, that's hypothesis number one. Hypothesis number two is even wilder in the sense that I'm venturing even further afield from something I know anything about, namely like the evolutionary psychology or something. Um, but here's, 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 um, here's the second proposal. And to kind of get you in the mood for this one, I'm going to present a thought experiment first. Imagine that I'm programming a robot. And what my robot is going to do is go to Mars and gather a bunch of evidence, and it's going to form beliefs on the basis of this evidence and then report back to me. Now, the way I get to program the robot is as follows. I, got to I get to tell the robot how it will respond to the evidence that it receives. Okay? So the robot's going to get some evidence. And I've plugged in a bunch of rules for what to do with that evidence. Now we're going to consider a few different versions of this robot case. In the first version of the case, I know, don't ask me how, that my robot is perfect in the sense that it will always do exactly what I programmed it to do. Okay, if I tell it that when it gets E, it should believe P, it is going to do that, and I'm certain of that no matter what. 
Now suppose I ask myself, do I want my robot to ever defer to doubt, to ever start like stepping back from its commitments and then abandoning its belief and so on and so on? And the answer is going to be no, because I know, the programmer, that the robot isn't going to mess up. So, and that's going to include cases where, you know, suppose the robot gets to Mars, then a bunch of Martians show up and say, ah, oh, you know, robots like you, they tend to malfunction in our environment. You really shouldn't trust the reasoning you just did. I'm going to want the robot to say, I got lucky. So maybe robots like me tend to malfunction, but not me. I'm doing well. Okay? And that's how I'll program it, because I know that it will do well. Right? But now let's take a more realistic case where I, I'm not certain that my robot is going to function perfectly. I think sometimes the robot is going to mess up. So suppose, for example, I think that when the battery is low, it's going to do no better than chances. Right? Well, then I'm going to want the robot to get worried about any beliefs it formed if it comes to learn that the, the battery was low. Okay? And in fact, I'm going to want the robot to defer to doubt. So if it formed a bunch of judgments, when the battery was low, and then it realizes that the battery was low for the last 10 minutes, I'm going to want it to take a step back from those judgments and say, oh, I don't know about those. They were formed while the battery was low, and then ultimately abandon them and go back to what I thought before. But I won't necessarily always want my robot to defer to doubt. Okay? So suppose, for example, that one of the things I want my robot to do is make some comparisons between how things are on Mars and how things are on Earth. Now, my robot is only going to like come to life once it sort of arrives on Mars. So it's not going to have any direct evidence about what things are like on Earth. But that's OK, because I, the programmer, can sort of manually program in by hand all sorts of views about Earth. So it's going to just show up in the world with all these views about Earth, having never been there. Now, if the robot sort of has a philosophical mindset, it might think to itself one day, here I have all of these commitments about the planet Earth. And if I take a step back from my views about Earth, I realize I have no way of recovering them. Nothing else about what's going on on Mars here is, is telling me uh, stuff about Earth. But whatever I do, I don't want the, ro the, the robot to get worried about that sort of doubt. So that's going to be a case where I'm going to program the robot and say, yeah, 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 don't worry about that. Don't worry about, don't, don't, don't defer to doubt when it comes to your beliefs about Earth. Yes, you can't recover them from the perspective of doubt, but so what? Believe them anyway. Stick to your guts. Okay? And again, that's just because I'm using my knowledge about how things are on Earth when I'm programming the robot. Okay. Now, if the robot is not just sort of philosophically inclined, but actually an epistemologist, <laughs> the robot might start getting very concerned upon realizing that in some cases it defers to doubt, like when its battery is low, and in other cases it doesn't, like when it comes to the beliefs about Earth. And it might start thinking, why do I defer to doubt in some cases but not others? And the unfortunate thing for the robot is that the answer to that question is not accessible to it. The, the reason it has these tendencies is because I, the programmer, knew that when the battery was low, the mistakes, mistakes were going to be made, but the stuff about Earth was not going to be, was, was going to be correct. Okay? So there are reasons for the robot having these tendencies that are not going to be accessible to the robot. And the robot might try to give all sorts of fancy philosophical justifications, and I mean, according to me, they won't succeed, but crucially, they won't be tracking the actual reasons why the robot has these tendencies. 
So my wild empirical speculation is that we might be in a very similar position to the robot. So um, evolution might have, so to speak, programmed us to get worried about making certain kinds of mistakes but not worried about making other kinds of mistakes. And that might be a function of what kinds of mistakes we were, back in the day, in fact prone to make. So if some of the time we messed up on our reasoning, it would be kind of useful for people to be able to do this thing of taking a step back from the conclusions they reached and say, oh, maybe I shouldn't trust that reason. But if in fact there is an external world, it certainly wouldn't have done anybody any good to worry that there isn't. And if things proceeded in a relatively patterned way, it wouldn't have done any good to worry that the future isn't going to be like the past, and so forth. Okay? Now, of course, from the philosophical perspective that we occupy, the dispositions might end up looking like quite a hodgepodge. There might not be a whole lot of principled things you can say about why in this case we do, in this case we don't, in this case some people do, some people don't. But it may well be that those sorts of um, our programming, so to speak, has kind of hardwired certain doubt-deferring tendencies in us for these sorts of reasons. Okay. So let me wrap up here. So Patrick Shanley, in his play Doubt, which was made into a movie, perhaps some of you uh, have seen, describes doubt as a wordless being that moves just as the instant moves. It presses upward without explanation, fluid and wordless. So my view, now we're back on the philosophical side of things, is that we can always engage in this process of entertaining doubt. You always can sort of get interested in this question of which of my beliefs can I recover if I bracket some of my commitments? But whether to actually take up the perspective of doubt, to defer to it, to adapt whatever attitude that doubtful perspective recommends, that's not something that can be decided deliberatively. It's something that just arises, fluid and worthless. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you.